1: Welcome to New Books in Journalism, where we talk about the latest works in journalism, media, and communication with the people who wrote them. I'm David Schwartz from the University of Iowa School of Journalism and Mass Communication. Our guests for this episode are Ethan Thompson and Jason Mattel, editors of the new book, How to Watch Television, a collection of essays from today's leading scholars on television culture. Jason, Ethan, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, So before we get to how to watch television, first, uh, just give us a little bit about your background. Ethan, let's start with you. Um, Just give us your academic and your professional background, and then we'll move on to to you, Jason. Okay. My
2: name is Ethan Thompson. I'm an associate professor at Texas A&M University, uh, Corpus Christi. And uh, the the way I got into this field, actually, is that I uh, grew up in a very small town just about 20 miles from here, and television was kind of my route out and away away from places and gave me access to to different ways of thinking and different things to experience in the world Uh, I ended up going to uh, the University of Texas as an undergrad and then I got my PhD at the University of Southern California in cinema television uh, critical studies
0: and Jason go ahead so I'm a professor of film and media culture and American studies at Middlebury College in Vermont and uh, I started as you know i went to oberlin college as an undergrad and i was a theater and english double major and i knew i was always interested in popular culture but there was no course of study at that time at oberlin and um by sheer luck and happenstance um i was living in minneapolis after undergraduate and i took a class at the university of minnesota that was taught by a visiting professor who i knew nothing about by the name of john fisk and uh Taking that class with him, I slowly learned, oh, wait a minute. He is pretty much the founder or one of the founders of a certain type of television studies in the in uh, the U.S. And uh, it really inspired me. And I went on and followed him to University of Wisconsin-Madison and got my Ph.D. there. Um, and pretty much focused on television but also film and other forms of popular culture. And I've been at Middlebury since uh, –
1: 2002. So now Fisk, I believe, also was, the, I believe, the mentor to Jenkins, and you have Jenkins as a chapter in this book. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, that's right. And actually, you know, if, if you look at the book, uh, there are a lot of people who came from Wisconsin um, as grad students, as well as uh, USC. So there's certainly a, a network of affiliated uh, faculty and grad students that are represented in the book.
1: So now, Ethan, you were Texas and USC, and and uh, Jason, you were, you know, you said Oberlin and Wisconsin. So, how did you two begin collaborating? Was this book the first time, or had you collaborated before?
2: Well, I guess um, we uh, actually we've, we've just run in the same circles in, in, in television studies going back a, a number of years. Actually, the first uh, presentation I ever did at a conference, I was on a panel with Jason and Henry Jenkins, as a matter of fact, <laughs> about parody and my work, uh, uh focuses more on television and comedy. So that was like the first time that we had met. And then I guess, um, from there we, we tend to go to the same conferences and, uh, have a lot of the same, you know, friends and colleagues uh, that we called upon to contribute to this book.
0: And I'm so, yeah, had not done a formal collaboration. Um, and I, I just want to m- make it clear for the, the world to know that the book was originally Ethan's idea. And he came to me with the pitch and asking me to collab- to uh, contribute an essay. And it was still pretty early. I was one of the first people he approached. And I loved the idea so much that I actually asked him, would you be interested in working with a co-editor on this? Um, so, so it was his conception and I, I jumped on. Yeah, and
2: I, I I seized that opportunity because it meant half half the work and twice the <laughs> qual. As far as I was concerned, it really allowed the book to uh, to become something much bigger in terms of its scope and uh, and so that was it.
1: Just was kind of a no brainer for me to get Jason involved as well. Great. So at its genesis, uh, you know, before you know, before Jason got involved, and you had this idea. Where, where did it come from? What prompted you to think that okay, this is a book that or, that needs to be produced
2: well i tell you what it goes back to the very first time i ever found myself uh in a in a classroom trying to trying to teach television criticism and television studies to students there's really uh this kind of um this void in critical writing between uh the kind of like short or uh content based like reviews of critics of television that people might see um you know formerly in a newspaper and now online, I guess. And then the kind of academic criticism uh, that, that scholars you know, are producing. Um, so in other words, there's, there's just this missing, this void of the kind of things that we often want our students to produce, which in a classroom tends to focus on a, a particular TV series um, or one, one uh, central issue. Whereas television scholarship, more formal scholarship, usually is larger in scope and also written for a, a different audience in mind. So the need for something like this, uh, you know, was 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 quite apparent. But how to go about it, who to involve and what the the real focus of it would be um, took a, a lot more time to kind of work itself out.
1: And can I kind of go through that process, the book uh, for listeners, there, there are 40 essays in the book. And they each uh, focus mostly on on a show. Um,
2: yeah, the idea I, I would say that kind of the way that we got people on board was to tell them like this is what we want to, this book you know to be for, and what we'd really like for is for you to write an essay about a TV show that you would like to write about. <laughs> you know, um, a kind of narrow it down, allow people to just focus on one show and even a particular episode of a show perhaps one that they used to teach in the classroom that they find, uh, uh, useful. And Jason and I, uh, you know, discussed amongst ourselves, well, how do we go about getting a, the proper critical scope? How do we cover the, 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 the variety of different critical methods and approaches as well as different genres and types of shows that we want by, uh, contacting and involving people, different people in this project. The amazing thing was that, uh, Really, without exception, everyone we asked to potentially contribute to the book agreed to do so, and we even found the book on growing in scope because we had such a positive response.
1: And that's great. Yeah. Uh, and I'm sorry, Jason, go ahead. Yeah, we didn't. Uh, we didn't
0: start this process collaborating. Where Ethan, when he approached me and said, "We want to write a book with 40 essays," um, yeah, and I would, I would. Say anyone who is listening who's thinking about editing their own anthology. Don't try to edit a book with forty essays. It's it's <laughs> kind of a <laughs> kamikaze move. Um, but the what we you know one of the challenges of teaching television is that the object of study is almost infinite in scope. We have you know over sixty years of history. We have you know thousands and thousands of different programs that have aired um, during that time. Um, across many, many different nations with very little interplay, you know, between national television systems for the most part. Um, And a huge range of genres, both fictional and non-fictional. And it's, it's, you know, you can cover so much material in a television studies course, especially an intro class, which is what we conceived this for, that we realized that simply to uh, put together a book that we felt, hit on so many different areas that a faculty member might want to cover that we needed a large number of essays just to cover it. We did not want to have essays focused on a genre or an era. We wanted to focus on an individual show because like Ethan said, we were trying to provide models for student Mm -hmm. writing and we don't, you know, typically in the assignment that I usually give as the final essay for my intro to television class is choose a television program and analyze it using one of the concepts we've explored. You know, I give more parameters there. Um, we don't ask, you know, write a history of the sitcom, you know, so we really want something very focused. And I think that those types of models are rare and hard to find, especially that seem researchable and um, writable in a tone
1: that undergrads are able to do. Now <clears throat> Ethan, I want to come back to your particular um, article and chapter in just a bit, but Jason sticking with yours. Um, to give the listeners an idea of, of you know one type of, article, of chapter that they'll find in this book, you wrote about the children's show Phineas and Ferb and you kind of turned on its head this idea that children's TV is always mindless programming. It's always commercialized. Um, take just, if you would, a couple couple minutes to a few minutes to to, to talk about your chapter and what it is that you were trying to do with it.
0: Sure. So like I said, one of the main purposes of the book was to cover the scope of what, you know, television uh, studies course might cover and children's television is a really important part of TV history and a really important part of the function of the medium. Um, and, There's a much more limited body of research, especially from a humanistic, critical perspective. There's a fair amount of social science about uh, educational television and uh, media effects, but very little criticism. So uh, we wanted to definitely include a a chapter on children's television. And um, the chapter, I think, is a good example of the approach of the book as a whole, where we asked authors to take something that either they have written about, in another format and to distill it for a sort of undergraduate criticism audience or to take some of the their thrust of what they write about methodologically, topically, um, or, you know, a certain genre or, or what have you um, and apply it to a new object of study. And the latter is what I did. So I've written a fair amount about children's television and animation. And one of the things that I, I've written about is the way in which children's television has been has functioned as a bad object throughout the medium's history. It's very easy to blame television for various social ills, usually tied to children's culture. Um, and I think that's shifted somewhat in the past 10 years with the rise of video games as the new bad object uh, or the internet, social networking, what, what have you. Um, but still, I think children's television, when you talk to most everyday people, they see children's television as a problem, not a strength of the medium. So I wanted to combat that um, and really think about children's television, which I see right now is really thriving and having so so many great programs. I have three children um, so I get to watch a lot of these programs um, once removed uh, through the eyes of my kids and when we were putting together the project, Phineas and Ferb was my kids' favorite show it's still my son's favorite show Um, and I watched a number of the episodes and was really impressed with the clever plotting and uh, sophistication of the way in which the show worked Um, at the same time Time, my major research project was, uh, is a book on television narrative that I call a complex television that looks at the concept of narrative complexity in recent, in recent serialized TV. And as I was watching Phineas and Ferb with my kids, I realized that many of the hallmarks of narrative complexity were being transferred to children's television. In, uh, in this show, which I thought was fascinating. So the bulk of my essay is arguing that unlike the characterization, children's intelligence can speak up to viewers instead of speaking down to them and encourage them to engage in a mode of viewing that forces them to pay close attention, not about distraction, but rather attention. It forces them to think about narrative structure. In a way that we don't tend to think that kids do when they're watching t v although I argue they would, and that the uh, humor is built on in in some ways um the repetition of the form. a lot of people complain that television, especially children 's television, overly formulaic and what I think is fascinating about um Phineas and Ferb is they use the formulaic structure as a strength, not a weakness because it's all about the variations on the form. So there's a lot of things that happen in every single episode of Phineas and Ferb in terms of plot and character moves and uh, recurring jokes and, and lines and everything. And the way in which they use that formulaic structure is to create um, moments of pleasure and humor through slight variations on those formulas, or anticipation of what how the formula will deliver. This so is exploring um, one episode and how that plot structure actually gets repeated in multiple episodes um, across a few seasons, uh, and tries to ultimately argue that there's a level of sophistication that is there that's not just um, sort of double speak for adults to enjoy, but actually is what
1: why kids really love the show. So, Ethan. I- I'm sorry, Phineas and Ferb is a fairly uh, current show. There's a chapter in there that focuses on parks and recreation. This is still, for the most part, is still on the air. There are also chapters on Dick Van Dyke and the Cosby show. How did you, was this a conscious decision? I know you you sort of let people pitch what they wanted to do, but did you want to have a mix of the classical show or the older shows and also what is current?
2: Yeah, absolutely. That was one of the things that that we wanted to do was provide that kind of uh, historical uh, scope and I don't know, perhaps ironically, I'm probably the person that, that uh, selected the TV show that was instantly the most dated because <laughs> mine, mine only ran for one season. It's now, it's now gone by the time the book was published. But certainly we were attempting to kind of provide that scope as well as you know, show um, that you can apply these critical approaches to programs uh, whether they were on the air you know, 50 years ago, 30 years ago, or, or today – so there definitely was that 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 kind of attempt. I also uh as a matter of fact I wanted to add you know, that uh I'm I'm currently in the process right now I'm teaching television criticism two television criticism courses and we actually just used Jason's essay on Phineas and Ferb last week to talk about narrative complexity and uh you know Doing that, despite the fact that my students, we I don't need to assign them Phineas and Ferb to watch. M- m- many of them have uh, exposure to that already. But we're able to use that essay to talk about narrative complexity and all different kinds of, of television series. So my students uh, read his essay. We discussed his essay as a way to think about how television formula and narrative works, the notion of repetition with variation. So they're then applying that. In their own analyses of all sorts of different
1: television programs, sure. And the chapter was fascinating. I mean, Jason, like you, I have three kids, and I tend to shy away when they start when to watch things that are on Disney. But they yeah. did, you know, stumble upon Phineas and Ferb one day, and and it was incredibly complex. And you're right; it, it was not what you know you would think as being a stereotypical you know kids show.
0: Yeah, and I think that. um, one of the things I try to get at in the essay and just in general, when writing about kids TV is trying to see it from the kid's point of view mm-hmm. to some degree, um, but using adult uh, critical tools and, um, you know, academic tools. And I think that, you know, Ethan, it's great to hear that the students got that from their own experience and were able to reflect on that. Um, but I think that, one of the challenges of teaching popular culture and specifically TV is getting students to think critically about their own experiences. Um, So one of, you know, in our selection of which shows we wanted covered, we definitely wanted a range of shows in terms of history and genre and things like that. But we also wanted to make sure that there were some shows that um, would be things that the students were already very familiar with and had a, attachment to so that when they read the criticism, they could um, see that criticism isn't just about sort of critiquing or complaining about something, but rather that there's, there's a way that the sort of affection for an object can come through as well through close analysis.
1: And Jason, or Jason, Ethan rather, you're, you know, Jason rather was talking about, you know, the face and is something, you know, that people can identify with. There's some, there's, there, there's some characters there. Um, you joked about how your the show you looked at, Onion News Network, lasted for a season. You know, it was basically one and done. But I, I thought that your essay wasn't so much about the show itself as it was about the whole idea of, was it audience taste and brand identity and the era of the DVR? Um, just, again, right. talk, talk about your, your piece a little bit more in terms of, of brand identity and the DVR and these new technologies um, and how it applied to the show that you considered
2: yeah absolutely. Thank goodness for all of us, the
1: onion continues, right. The onion carries
2: on in its many different forms. and you're right my my piece is looking at uh it's the onion news network ostensibly, but really the topic of my piece is is the idea of of brand identity and the concept of flow, which is really central to television studies. Um, and, and trying to determine, you know, what is, what is television criticism about anyway? What is the television and television criticism? And the concept of flow is essentially that, you know, we have to think about our experience of television not being just these kind of finite blocks of time uh, that you used to see when you look at the television schedule of, you know, this show on for 30 minutes. Rather, it's the various different pieces that come together that we experience in television, and nowadays, because we can experience TV in so, so many different ways on our, uh, our own and in terms of when we watch things, how we watch them, what devices we're watching them on, it's even more important for the, the channels that, are, uh, that are, 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 are programming TV to have a sense of consistency across those various segments so that there's a clear brand in the, the audience for those shows recognizes that it it is uh, appealing to their taste, however different those segments might might seem. So my essay is looking at the Onion News Network um, and the way in which the independent film channel, which uh, programmed the Onion News Network, branded not just that show, but the commercials during that show, whether they be for Acura, which was integrated into the, the, the program itself with uh, a, a, a panel of, of commentators. Or even the, the promotions for the sitcom Malcolm in the Middle, which was then airing on IFC and needed to be rebranded and made consistent with uh, the, the IFC kind of hipster brand image that they, they worked to uh, to cultivate. So doing that, uh, I'm, I look at a, a single episode of, of the Onion News Network, which was about an asteroid headed to Earth and going to destroy the planet by the time the the episode was over. And I thought I, I chose that episode because this idea of flow and the importance of flow is something that really can help us understand our experience of, of media beyond just television, but certainly beyond contemporary television. And so I uh, I made the, the connection between this broadcast about the end of the world with the uh, famous Orson Welles uh, War of the Worlds broadcast, which just I guess it was maybe last week, celebrated its uh, 75th anniversary. Is that correct? Yep. Um, so that, uh, which is probably the most famous example of media panic, you know, really was about not the fact that this was just such a compelling drama with the accounts of, of Martians and you know invading, but the fact that the way that they constructed that production, it included these fake little. Fake commercials, fake performances, as if it was just an evening's experience of radio, and it was that kind of realism of the experience of what listening to the radio was like, which would be interrupted with these uh, news, compelling broadcasts that and accounts of the destruction that was happening in different places. That really helped inspire uh, that the sense of realism that might help us explain why people reacted the way that they did. Um, so there's not and. and such a huge distinction in some ways between our contemporary experience of media and segmentation and how those segments need to flow together in order to have a consistent brand um, and encourage people to watch not just one show on IFC, but a variety of shows on IFC and follow them in different places and, and different formats and, and on different platforms than there was even you know, 75 years ago when people listened to radio in the, in the War of the Worlds. So I would say my uh, my piece is an example of of television criticism that is both historical and contemporary, and I really see in my own approach to to thinking about television history and criticism go hand in hand when we 're doing history when we 're thinking about history we 're essentially just doing criticism of the past, and when we 're looking at the present and we 're thinking critically we're we 're writing that history of of our present too.
0: Sure, no, can, go ahead. Can I add just two quick things? Um, first, uh, one of the things I really love about Ethan's essay, and um, I look forward to teaching it, I'll, I'll be using the book um, in the spring, is the way in which it allowed us to sneak advertising into the book. And one of the challenges <laughs> of the, our concept was we were looking at an individual – Episode of a television show is the ideal that every essay follows, and some essays use more than one episode, but they're almost all focused on a single show. Well, the the show logic is a major part of television, but the advertising logic um, is, you know, part of that as well. And I I was really concerned that we would have this massive book. Covering the whole gamut of television and not address advertising. So when Ethan came up with this this way of incorporating the advertising and the promotion that's embedded in the episode of Onion News Network um, into his essay, I think that's really important and 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 uh, deals with an absence that would otherwise be very glaring. Yeah,
2: um, I would add. Have- I would add that we also have there's another essay on Modern Family, which of course is very uh, popular contemporary uh, television show. Uh, but there is an essay on on Modern Family, which centered on the on the iPad and the release of the iPad. So that essay, which is by Kevin Sandler, is another one that looks at television narrative as well as the notion, uh, notion of product integration and the way that commercial television works today.
0: And just the other point I wanted to make off of – riffing off of what Ethan said um, about the role of history, one of the questions that he and I really batted around a lot when we were putting together the proposal and when we were reaching out to contributors is, you know, we want to write a book that is a collection of television criticism, but it's television criticism from an academic scholarly perspective. And we really had to figure out, well, what does that mean? What's distinctive about what we're doing in this book and what we're asking our authors to do from what is published on, you know, in the New York Times or on websites like the A.V. Club? Um, Journalistic criticism, I would say right now, is really thriving in the, in the realm of television. But we wanted to offer something distinctive that we could show our students this is what a scholarly dimension adds. And I think that the role of history is one of those uh, crucial aspects that even though many of these essays are about contemporary programs, um, they all need to be historically contextualized. They all look at the present through the lens of the past and try to understand the continuities between you know within a genre or within an industrial formation or within an audience segment um, that the past of television or other media really uh, is is the foundation on you know that the present programming is built on.
1: And I thought Jeremy Butler's chapter on on Mad Men really did that. Just what you're talking about there, Jason, about how it, it incorporated the style and the historical and to the contemporary and to really from an academic level, not necessarily just a criticism level, but an academic level. I thought he really achieved that, and it made me think a little bit of your essay when you were talking about the DVR, Ethan. Uh, you know how that's affect on on the way you know the incorporation of advertising, and how uh, I believe it was Dove uh, began running ads during mad men that had their characters dressed up in in the, in the contemporary style of, of mad men so that you were fast forwarding, but then you were pausing and then you were stopping because you thought, Oh, it's mad men. Oh, it's not mad men. It's an ad for dove. And it was, you know, it was almost sort of that reverse engineering that you were just, you know, just talking about.
2: Oh, yeah. Um, Yeah, absolutely. There's a a variety of strategies that have been employed to blur those lines and, and try to get our attention. And, you know, for lack of a better term, trick us into, into watching, um, advertising for sure. Uh, but yeah, absolutely. Jeremy's piece is, is another one that is, is really useful and that I've actually, I have taught and used in the, the classroom and is, is about, uh, the, the, the visual style of Mad Men and thinking about the way that we see things, um, in television, which doesn't have, it hasn't had the same kind of attention that has been paid to film in terms of its its style uh visual style uh, is an important component of, of what something means it's not just what what happens and it's also not just about set designing and connect, con- uh, creating this uh authentic time but it's also telling us something communicating something about what the show is about and how we actually see it uh, which is what jeremy's piece uh deals with
0: yeah and i think that the uh the Jeremy's piece is a good example where it applies a uh, formalist vocabulary, um, which in an intro to TV class, certainly my students, I try to get them to use to think about concepts like staging and you know editing patterns and the sort of the juxtaposition of images and and that's an important aspect of a course. Um, but I also what I love about Jeremy's piece that it, it uses that style in order to make an argument about the show, not just to say this is how, what the style is, right. but this is how it works and why it matters.
1: I want to touch on, I'm fascinated by titles of books and, and the, uh, the title of the book is, is how to watch television. The introduction is an owner's manual for television. So there's a, there's a definite correlation between the two. And you both have touched on it a bit about you know who who is the audience for this book and and it's not just you know people who care about TV or it's not just you know the New York Times or you know it's 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 not pop culture necessarily but it's more it's more academic. Um, but still, how did you come? And, and maybe it's it's not as big a deal as I'm making it out to be. But how how did you come to this title? Um, and what was what was the intent with it? And uh, what would you know when people look at it and when people pick up the book, you know, in the classroom setting. You know, what are you hoping that they get out of this?
2: Well, it's one of those things, right? It's a joke, and yet it's not a joke. (laughs) (laughs) People immediately kind of get that uh, how to watch television. Well, that's something that everyone just assumes that they know how to watch television. But here we have, we've put together this entire book. Um, So maybe we're suggesting that, in fact, there are a whole variety, indeed, 40 different ways of watching TV, and that's kind of um, uh, was a, another way that we approach, you know, putting this this book together and what the book is actually about. When people hear criticism, too often in my class, I kind of have to start from this, and and we do this in the ju- introduction as well. Criticism isn't about a thumbs up or a thumbs down on something, right? Uh, which is kind of the idea that's filtered throughout our culture because of uh of uh, 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 Siskel and Ebert, and and the kind of of criticism that people have have seen in TV before, it's about understanding something in a different way, approaching it, looking at it, watching it in our terms in a way that they haven't before, right? So the title "How to Watch Television" is is really, I would say, you know, both something to to kind of force people to step back and think differently about something that's a part of their lives that they live with and maybe haven't been critical, you know, uh, without being encouraged to kind of step and take that distance. And then recognizing here we have all these different ways of making sense of television amongst 40 essays, 40 different shows. Actually, I think there's 41 because we have one essay that combines two different shows. Right. Surely there is a different way of watching television than you had known um, before picking up this book.
0: And I would just add that um, when Ethan first came to me with this idea, um, he had the title in hand. So it's, it's his baby. <laughs> and he was also quite passionate about the title. I remember as we started talking about what the book would be and you know, he when I came on as co-editor – he said, look, anything is up for grabs. We can really reconceive things as long as we have this title. And, and I thought that was great because I, I loved the title because, like he then says, it, it both makes something incredibly familiar and defamiliarizes us with it. And highlights that, you know, we do – once we have an education in media studies, we watch television differently, you know. I see things when I'm watching television that I know other people who are watching aren't going to notice, and that's because education matters. And if we can convey that to our students, and I think that every one of these essays does convey it in a different way, that there's more to see than what you might expect. And highlighting that to our students, I think, is exciting in the same way that you know when you take a you know literature class and it opens up a, a book for you, or you take art history and you see a painting and you understand it. Something maybe you have seen dozens of times, but you know you understand it in a different way. You see it differently, and that's our goal in uh, all these essays is to make students see differently.
1: And you know that's really interesting that, that you put it that way. Um, Henry Jenkins was was on the podcast a while back, and he mentioned that one of his goals as an academic is to transcend academia because, you know, yeah. he, his goal, you know, what, why, why keep all this information bottled up in this, in this little culture when it could be benefiting so many more. So, you know, you each have used, uh, you know, some of these essays perhaps to teach your undergraduates The undergraduates are not at the level, some of them not, at least not yet where you are in understanding um, TV culture. How do you find that they were responding to the articles from here or comparable articles that you've chosen to teach to undergrads? How do they respond to uh, this academic look at television?
2: Uh. Positively, <laughs> it works. I've actually had I've had some really great experiences teaching the book in the classrooms. Uh, like I said, I just did you know Jason's last week, and the first question was they wanted to know if he had kids <laughs> because because I think they recognized that there was this authenticity uh, to to and this uh, this in, this uh, sincerity to his his piece and his understanding of the material um, that he was looking at. You know, and it's just just, when you when you say something and you you talk about how important it is, you know, to transcend an academia audience, it just it seems so obvious, doesn't it? I mean, how absurd to talk about television and popular culture and not seek to communicate beyond an academia, an academic audience. It just it makes so much sense to do that. So I have I've found uh, that the students absolutely appreciate being able to, to read and see that you can take popular culture and in our case television, you can take it serious, you, seriously and you can be uh, rigorous in approaching the analysis of popular culture without needing to unnecessarily employ a language that is going to exclude people or that is off-putting. And that unfortunately, that does happen. Um, and when you, when you try to incorporate academic writing in courses sometimes, um, so I have found that no, they, they really do appreciate it and they enjoy it. Um, and that's one of the benefits of having 40 different contributors to a book. Uh, that's one more thing I'll say about the title is that, uh, you know, if you're going to write a book called how to watch television, it would be an absurd thing for one person to write that book or even two people. It needs to be 40 different people. It needs to be 40 different ways of thinking about and writing uh, about television. And so I would say that, you know, again, with such a wide, broad variety of different approaches that uh, students, they may not like one, but they're going to find another that they that they do appreciate, that they, they can uh, identify with and maybe uh, use on
0: their own. And if I could just add to everything Ethan just said, um, when we were – when we invited people to, to contribute to the book, uh, we gave them, I think, much more concrete-focused guidance on how to develop their essays than any other anthology I've been involved with. Um, because we said this is designed not for an audience of fellow scholars, but for smart, engaged readers with no expertise – That can be an undergraduate class, but we also want to make sure that this book, and I think it could work really well, if you're a TV fan and you're just interested in TV. All of these essays are accessible. They're not assumed; they don't have to be taught within the context of a class. You can just pick them up, read them, and learn something, and hopefully enjoy reading them. Um, We made we made it very clear to our writers that the goal of each essay is not to advance a theoretical argument, and I think that most you know, journal articles that scholars write, the goal of analyzing something is not necessarily to understand it better, but to understand something broader. You know, these essays are shorter than a journal article and they are designed not to advance theoretical or a, you know, conceptual argument, but rather to provide greater insight into a text. Um, we made it very clear and did a lot of hands-on editing to ensure that the phrasing and the prose style was accessible and repl- repl- replicable, hard to say, but um, <laughs> by uh, by potential students so that they could read an essay and say, you know, I want to write like that. I want to explore a television show like that person does. And we also made a very uh, firm uh, rule that citations were not – we are going to try to avoid citations of theory and um, of academic discourse as much as possible. So there are only a few essays that really explore a theoretical concept, and when they do, it's phrased and, and couched in a way that you don't need to know anything about the theory order to understand the argument
1: did any of the contributors i don't need names but did any of the contributors yeah. struggle with that that's it's counterintuitive to what they've been trained to do well yes. this is this is one of the
2: advantages of having two editors is yeah. that you you get good cop bad cop yeah. <laughs> and you can and you can you can enforce the those guidelines and you can uh, get get your your what it is you're, you're working on uh, effectively through through two people, maybe sometimes better than than just one. But yeah, I mean, I, I think some some struggled more than others, but they they recognized what the project was about and what its utility would be. And I know that you know many of them recognized that they 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 want to turn around and use this book in their own courses, so they understood what it was what we were trying to do.
0: We also we were very selective in inviting people. Um, yeah. We wanted to make sure that they were people not only who had good ideas and were good researchers, but we wanted people whose writing was clear, who it would not be difficult for them to write for a general audience. Um, you know, I think that a lot of academia a lot of academia rewards people whose writing is very sophisticated and potentially obscure. And I think there can be a place for that, but not in this book. So we we chose people who we thought were already conversant in um, in that vein. And some of that were, you know, senior scholars. I mean, Henry Jenkins is a great example of someone who has written for a popular audience and has really had crossover appeal in great ways. Another really excellent example is Susan Douglas, um, who we invited, uh, to write about, um, and we really, I think we gave her free reign to write whatever she wanted. And she said she would love to write about Jersey shore, which was the perfect match. Um, you know, and so here are people who have had success writing books and articles or blogs that cross over. And that was the, the sort of feeling we wanted to capture. Um, there were other people who hadn't had experience doing that, who we worked with, and I think what came out in every instance was was really successful. Another important thing that we had going in is that we didn't want it; we we wanted the lineup of contributors to be very strong, and we want because we knew one of the ways in which this book would um, would disseminate and circulate is having sort of top names in the field. Uh, Represented, but we also wanted to have you know people who were new to the field, um, you know grad students or you know brand new assistant professors um, who could contribute. And I think that certainly in my experience, being able to contribute to an anthology early in your career um, when you're uh, in a table of contents with some really heavy hitters is a great way to sort of continue the field and, and sustain it. So I'm really proud of the lineup we have. That is really a, a range of rank and background, and uh, and it is very. I will say it is primarily focused on American television, and this is one of the challenges that I think television scholarship has over film studies. For instance, film studies is pretty easy to teach international film. Um, it's much more difficult to teach international television because the whole regulatory and economic system is so different in other places. And we just don't, you know, in the U S and both Ethan and I are, you know, uh, American. And I think that there's just not that exposure and circulation of international television as there is compared to film. So, um, so we made the conscious decision to prioritize American television um, with a
1: couple of examples of British, uh, imports and, uh, crossovers. Okay. So the book is out and it's available for, uh, instructors to use in their classroom. What is, now that this is done, what is next on each of your agendas? Wow. Uh,
2: to keep teaching a variety of classes and, and, and doing research in television, uh, as well as I'm, I'm currently editing a documentary that I'm making about, a a television show, a one-off program that was made in 1960 uh, about a family, a real-life family in Amarillo, Texas, that is a kind of a precursor, I think, to um, the family reality television shows that exist today. So I'm working on that documentary. I'm also doing research in uh, uh, television of the 1960s and the ways in which comedy in in the 60s could or couldn't incorporate satire, what the kind of limits were of, of, of controversial content in sixties television comedy.
0: And I, I just finished writing, uh, another, uh, monograph called complex television, um, which is forthcoming from NYU press. It's also available online. I did an open access, uh, peer review to, of the pre-publication draft, um, so uh that has been sort of my big research project for many years now and it's now to a point that it's almost done. Um, So once that's put to bed, the the next thing I'm going to be focused on is uh, I wrote a textbook a number of years ago called Television and American Culture which was published by Oxford in um, 2009 and uh, it's time to revise it. It's uh, somewhat dated in terms of some of its examples and certainly in terms of the distribution mechanisms and technologies that we use to engage with television, that's such a moving target that I feel like it has to be updated. So as soon as um, I get a little breathing room and do some research, uh, updating the textbook is my next big project.
1: Well, good luck with all your projects. This one is How to Watch Television, edited by Ethan Thompson and Jason Mattel. And guys, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Dave. You've been listening to New Books in Journalism, part of the New Books Network. You can find How to Watch Television, edited by Ethan Thompson and Jason Mattel, at Amazon and other retailers. Thanks for listening.